0: we're gonna go right back to John chapter 6 verse 16 and we're gonna go through verse 43 John chapter 6 verse 16 and if you wanted to open up your Bibles there you're welcome and um, the prophecy that went out saying that we are only gonna be done in this what next year March or something (laughs) we believe that we're gonna be able to um, prove that wrong (laughs) so today I need to just give you a little bit of backdrop because I think we we, we kind of gotten out of John for a little bit as we were talking about God and government. And uh, to remind you as to where we were, prior to John chapter 6, 16, leading up to it, uh, we see that Jesus feeds the 5,000. And this feeding of the 5,000 is reminiscent of the children of Israel being fed in the desert with manna from heaven. And uh, this miracle Jesus performed in multiplying the bread is to affirm that Jesus is, in fact, the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and shadows as the manna kept falling from heaven in the desert. So Jesus, here in the New Testament, kept multiplying the bread until all were fed. So here Jesus is, is the fulfillment of the type of manna from heaven. So it's affirming that, and it also affirms that Jesus is, in fact, the greater Moses. Because remember, back in the day, at this time, everybody looked to Moses as their spiritual leader, and here is Jesus, the greater Moses. It also affirmed that Jesus, just like manna of old, is from heaven, and He came from God to us to satisfy and save God's people. So with that backdrop in mind, let's continue allowing the Scriptures to speak to us chronologically as we read through, starting with John 6, 16. It says, When evening came, His disciples went down to, take to the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. But now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened, but he said to them, It is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Here we see Jesus walking on the water, and as he does, this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament type and shadow. And we will cover this in a few minutes. Verse twenty-two. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite side of the shore, lake, uh, opposite shore of the lake, realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. Then some boats from from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. Verse twenty-four. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there. They got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. Now, in this next portion of John, uh, Jesus identifies and judges those who follow him for all the wrong reasons. How many of you believe that that is what we see in the world today? An entire Christianity where a large portion of it following Christ for all the wrong reasons. And here Jesus addresses it. Verse 25, When they found Him on the other side of the lake, they asked Him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very very truly I tell you, you are looking at me, not because you saw the signs, or you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. You see, these very same people saw Jesus the day before. They saw him feeding the multitudes. And now here they are again looking for Jesus. They got something from him back then. And here they are again today looking for Him. Jesus points out the fact that they are not true disciples because they are only following Him for what they can get from Him and not because of who He is. Many people worship God because they find a benefit in it and they don't worship Him for who He is. You see, the miracles that took place in His ministry were for a very very important purpose. Today we think... God heals people because, he, because it's not nice to have pain. We think that that's why God does something for someone. But really, when God heals somebody, it's really a picture of what He's doing for the whole person. And it validates Him, secondly, as to who He is. All the miracles that took place in Jesus' life and all the miracles that took place by the hands of the apostles were to validate them that they were from God. So, Jesus points out the fact that they are not true disciples because they came looking for what the miracles could provide instead of seeing what the miracles came to say which was this is the Messiah see the miracles that took place in his ministry were for that purpose of validating him now many people are very familiar with the miracles of Jesus today we read about them we tell the, tell our kids the stories about all these miracles and in the same way in our day and age community churches oftentimes fill their seats with people who are only looking for what they can get from the community that they're part of. Now, I'm very pro-church community, and I believe God has placed it in our hearts to build a church community, an ark, a haven, a family, where people with similar views, similar worldviews, similar beliefs, can come together and worship God as we unite around truth. Now, I believe that that is a result of what truth does. When truth is preached, when truth is spoken, people who believe that truth, see that truth, want to live that truth and submit to that truth, all gather together. So truth has to be the central portion of the very thing that unites us. We gather around not a personality. We gather around not entertainment. We gather around not convenience. We gather around a truth, right? And oftentimes gathering around that truth is costly, but we want to do it because we believe that we live for that truth. It's God's truth. However, in the same way that God creates community around a truth, we see very oftentimes that communities are created outside of truth. Communities are now created around other things. And it's called church. For instance, the church at large today, we see what we call spiritual hobnobbers. Ever heard that term? Spiritual hobnobbers. <laughs> when these types of people, they congregate. These congregants you know, gather around to get business connections or relational needs met. These people oftentimes leave that specific church but keep the friends that they made there until they go to the next, next pond to fish out of and so enlarge their circle of connection and friends. However, they are, they are in it for their personal gain but not necessarily for serving God's people. So it's very important that a true community of Christ... gather around the truth that's what jesus accused them of you guys come because of what you can get from the miracles you do not come because you see me validated by those miracles it's not about jesus it's about what he gives them then you get other groups of people and they gather around around a different issue and that's what i call the ear tickling crowd Uh, When these people hear the teachings that affirms their personal beliefs, they will continue being part of that. However, the moment that the pulpit refuses to teach their made-up doctrines or their beliefs, they leave. In other words, it wasn't about learning from Scriptures. It was about affirming them in what they already believe. That's the second group. Then there's a third group, a third issue people gather around and create community, and that's the broken wing crowd. (laughs) They are the people who have been hurt and are looking for people to nurse their wounds for them. And to give them the support they now need, they don't have families of their own to do that. They need the church to do that, and they often, uh, you know, they often need the pulpit to stop talking about sin. They often need the pulpit to stop talking about repentance, and instead they need to talk about things that motivate and things of psychological nature. And to have a church family that cares for the hurting is a benefit of belonging to a God-fearing church. That's a benefit of belonging to a God-fearing church. So please, hear my heart. I am not saying somebody who is going through a hard time ought not to feel the support of the church and ought not to feel the healing that comes from those around them. Of course they are. My point is just that's not the purpose of the church. That is the benefit of a purposeful church. Can you see that? Everybody that... The body heals the body. When when <clears throat> when you hurt, when you get a cut, your body is healing your hand, right? And when somebody hurts, the body is healing the hurting. And it's, there's always there's there's a flow and a stream of people that always need healing. And and we're all we're all in that stream. We all need each other, right? What I'm saying is that's not why we gather. That's not the actual purpose of a church. That is one of the effects of a purpose-filled church. And then they also gather around things like what I call the Lone Rangers looking for, looking for community. These are people in search not for Christ but for friends. And one place they can find friends for sure is the church because the church, in their mind, um, exists to take people in no matter where that person is at. Now that is true but that's not why the church exists. You see, if we take Christ out of the center, and if we take the truth of Jesus away from the center, that church experiences what's called mission drift. It drifts. By the way, have you guys ever like Googled um, Salvation Army? Yeah, I mean, if you look at Salvation Army, now that's a great example of mission drift. I mean, that was a very powerful ministry at one stage, preaching the pure gospel. Now, do yourself a favor and go check out their website and see where they're at. That's called mission drift. You know how that happened? They put a focus on something other than the truth of the gospel. They put their focus upon helping people, and that's fine. But it ought to be a benefit of the gospel, the truth of the Word of God. So to have a church family where there are many strong friendships is a result of a God-fearing church, but it should never be the purpose of that God-fearing church. Christ is our purpose, even if all of our friends leave us. (laughs) I'll say this. This is so important. I don't think you might realize how important this is, but do you realize that every one of the things I'm mentioning to you right now is going to become a test to every single one of us? There's not a person who's going to come to Christ who is not going to be offended by fellow brothers and sisters in one way or another. Every one of us are. But the only possible way a person gets past those offenses is if those things that they're offended over wasn't why they came here in the first place. If you gather around the very truth of the Word of God, if that is the reason why, it's easy to get past all these other disappointments that that come your way or these temptations that come your way or these tests and trials that come your way. So it's very, very important for us to to take the cobwebs away and say the cobwebs of spiritual, spiritual hobnobbers and the cobwebs of ear tickling and the cobwebs of, you know, broken, the broken wing crowd or the lone ranger crowd. Like, all right, you know, I am actually here for a different reason. I'm here to worship God with others who have gathered around the same truths. We gather around the same truths. Then there's the virtual signal virtual signaling crowd, and those are the people who feel like they need to be part of a church that's that's um, you know more like I would say Salvation Army, where they just do a lot for the hungry and for the homeless and for the and I'm not saying that the church shouldn't be doing that I'm just saying that's not the purpose we don't exist for that reason, right and it my it is my goal to. Help us look at what Jesus is saying here and is saying, Look, you guys have gone through great extents. You guys have crossed the waters to follow me. This is day two, you're following me. Yesterday, you spent the entire day with me. Today, you crossed the waters, and there was, you know, you've been searching and searching for me, and here you are again looking for me. And I'm telling you, you are here for the wrong reason, Jesus is saying. Those miracles that you come for, Those are only to affirm who I am. Don't gather around you just for what you can get. Right? Gather around for who you can worship. That's what we are here for. See, here we see Jesus telling them, you look at the miracles and you look at everything that I have created in the wrong light. Verse 28, he says, then they asked Him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the works, or the work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. So there Jesus just absolutely goes right to the, to the very point. This is so that people may believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. That is why we preach the truth. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? I mean, how amazing is this? These were the very same people that he just fed, right? They saw the miracles happen. They've been hearing about all the miracles. That's why they came yesterday. That's why they went there to go and see him, because they heard about all these miracles happening. And... And then they're following him to see more miracles. And he says, actually, you're coming for the wrong reason. You need to come because of the truth that's standing before you. That's why you are here. And they go like, well, what sign do you give us to to prove to us that this is so? (laughs) Nothing was going to satisfy them. Why? Because they were unbelievers. Now, in this next portion of Scriptures, Jesus again proves He is the authentic Messiah by showing how He is the fulfillment of the manna that fell from heaven in the desert. Verse 31, Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Can you see how Jesus is, is, is working hard at eliminating all the falsehoods around him? And saying, I'm going to point it out. I'm going to call it out. If there are things that, ought, that you are here for all the wrong reasons, I'm going to call it out. I'm going to tell you now the reason you are here, the work of God is that you may believe and anyone who comes to me will never hunger again. I am that bread of life and that is why you follow me and that is why you are a disciple of mine and that is why we congregate and that is why we are a community. Nothing less than that. So here we see Jesus walks across the water reminiscent of Moses crossing the Red Sea. Jesus is literally saying, can you see now, I am the greater Moses. I am the one Moses was only a promise of. Jesus here claims that the Israelites crossing the Red Sea was simply foreshadowing him. And secondly, Jesus now compares himself to the manna that fell from heaven while the Jews were in the desert. And here Jesus now claims that the manna from heaven in the desert was simply foreshadowing him as well. Now in this next portion, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats and calls it God's choice. Very interesting. It's almost like Jesus constantly walking around, taking the cobwebs away so people could see this is not. This looks great, but it's not real. Why? Because you guys are here for the wrong reason. And here is the right reason. I am the greater Moses. I am the one that is from heaven, from God to you. And this is what it's all about. Can everybody say Jesus? Jesus? It's about nothing other than that. Everything else is a byproduct. Everything else is because of the fact that we have Jesus as our cornerstone. So in verse 36, it goes, But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe, Jesus says. So here Jesus calls them unbelievers. He says, However, all those the Father gives me will come to me. Not may come to me, might come to me should come to me, but will come to me. Very definitive. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. In other words, everybody the Father gives me, I will accept them, Jesus is saying. So here Jesus judges the followers who only follow Him for what they can get. Jesus says to him, You have heard all of the miracles that I have that I've performed. You have seen me perform mighty miracles. You haven't only heard of them and now you see me standing in front of you, and you still don't believe in me, you're still saying, well, what sign are you going to give me to prove that you are the Messiah? However, in contrast to these unbelievers, those whom the Father has given, Jesus, he says, will absolutely come to Him. So you've seen the miracles, you've heard of the miracles, and you're looking at me, and you won't come to me. But those whom the Father has given me, they will, not might, they will come to me. So Jesus is contrasting two categories of people right here. He says, not one of them will do what you are doing right now, which is, you take from me, but you do not come to me. You take from me, but you do not give yourself to me. But those whom the Father has given me, they will come and I will take them to be with me. So when Jesus declares, all those that the Father has given me will come, He is declaring that He will save those He came to save. Nothing more, nothing less. And this is what theologians call the doctrine of irresistible grace. The doctrine of irresistible grace is, when, is not that you cannot resist God. Of course you can resist God. You do that every day. But the doctrine of irresistible grace, as we, as we outlined very clearly in the last week, on Wednesday night, is the doctrine where it shows how God overcomes my resistance toward Him. How many of you have been won over by God? Yeah? That's called irresistible grace. He won you over. You went, you know what? I'm in. <laughs> you know what? How did that happen? Was it through coercion? No. He overcame your resistance by giving you a new heart, by giving you desires in your heart. The desires of your heart are the ones He gave you. You desired to fight Him, now you desire to love Him. What happened? It was the irresistible grace of God that touched your heart. And so that's what Jesus was saying when He said, all those the Father gives Me will come to Me. Why? Because of the irresistible grace of God. They will respond to God when God gives them a brand new heart. Not one of them refuses God in salvation. In this next portion of Scripture, Jesus confirms that all you see happening in regard to salvation is in fact the Father's will. Verse 38, it says, For I have come, I have come from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of Him who sent me. Verse 39, And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those He has given me. Just look at that verse. And this is the will of God, the one who sent me, that I, Jesus, shall lose none of all of those He has given me. But raise them up at the last day. What a great promise. Verse 40, For my Father's will, can everybody say, God's will. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. You see, there's always so much confusion when it comes to God's will. And today we're going to end off with this portion right here. God's will. God's will. One of the most asked questions, if not the most asked question is how do I know that I am in God's will? How many of you have asked that question or you're asking the question right now? What is God's will for my life? Am I in God's will for my life? How can I get into God's will for my life? If that's you, quick, raise your hand. Yeah, It's always every one of our questions. And I do want to demystify, demystify this whole idea of the will of God. Because most people live in such, um, what would you say, um, you know, they're never sure of, they're never sure of what they are doing because they're always wondering if that was the will of God for them. However, to demystify it is pretty simple to clear up because the will of God is to be viewed in three major categories. Three major categories. First, you have what is known as the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God cannot be known by anyone until it happens. The sovereign will of God cannot be known until it actually happens. I'll give you an example. Light be. There's light. Who knew God was going to do that? Who prayed that God might do it? God decides to do something, and He does it. It's the sovereign will of God. For instance, Noah's flood. Sovereign will of God. Many people would have disagreed. It didn't matter. It was something God was going to do, and He did. The coming of Christ. Many ask Jesus, so when are you coming again? When's the end? Because it's not for you to know. That's God's decision the sovereign will of God." Now not only can it not be known, but we we know it when we see it. The sovereign will of God cannot be broken. Nobody can stop it. Nobody can postpone it. Nobody can alter it. It always remains the same. It always takes place. The sovereign will of God is when God makes a decision and no man overthrows it. For instance, you're born into this family, sovereign will of God. You are born in this time of history, no one can change that. You are born with those genes, nobody's taking them from you. You cannot choose, nobody's voting them in or out. You are born a male. You are born a female, sovereign will of God. Nobody can change it, nobody can stop it. That is God's sovereignty. And I can tell you right now, whether it be within the church and the doctrines that you hear in the church, or whether it be in the culture and what you see happen in the culture, every single thing is the war for sovereignty. Everything is at war for sovereignty. And God is going like, actually, I'm sovereign. <laughs> you no. Know, You can't overthrow God's sovereignty in any way, shape, or form. So not only can it not be known, until it happens, the creation, the coming of Christ, the end times. The sovereign will of God cannot be broken. It always takes place. No one resists the hand of God in that way. Then we also see that God's sovereign will includes both good and evil. God's sovereign will includes both good and evil. For instance, I'll give you one example, the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, Christ absorbs God's wrath against your and my sin. At the crucifixion, God saves you and I from Himself. Can you say, this is good? Yeah. While those killing Jesus committed the most wicked of all crimes, this is evil. Both those good and evil that happened right there at the cross, both of them were involved in accordance with whose will? God's will. We know that it's God's will because the Bible tells us that it was God's will. It even tells us when God willed for that to happen. It tells us that God willed for that to happen before the foundations of the earth. You weren't even born yet, and God already decided that Jesus was going to be killed at the hands of the Roman soldiers for you, so that God can save you from Himself in the future. But that good was going to happen by the hands of those evil people, and all of it happened by God's sovereign decree, God's sovereign decree, both good and evil part of God's sovereign will. Can you see that? Yes. Now, most, most hate that because they can't see how God works all things, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the Sanhedrin, <laughs> the Jewish leader, how God works all things for the good to those That are called according to his purposes. Those are the things God ordains and makes them work together so that his purposes are established. So we see that the sovereign will of God needs to be understood in order to understand the will of God for your life. That's why you rejoice in all things, rejoice. Be thankful in all things. When you pray, you don't just you don't say to your friend, like, hey, you know what, let's, let's pack up and let's go and let's go to, the another, to another state or another city and let's go and make some money. And James says, no. No, 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 why don't you pray if it be your will? Because your sovereign will is not going to get overthrown. If I get to live, he says, if it be your will... I will live and go there tomorrow and build companies and make money. If it be your will, I will live to do that. If it's not your will, I will not live to do that (laughs) because your sovereign will is done. Well, you know, you could live so comfortably and so confidently if you just understood and believed the truth of Scripture's Right? Cannot be known until it happens. Cannot be broken. Always takes place. God's sovereign. He's king. He's supreme. Uses both good and evil to establish His purposes. Then we have a second category of the will of God. The second category of the will of God is the moral will of God. The moral will of God. This will of God, how God expresses His will in a different way. Like, for instance, you express your will in a different way too. Certain things you demand other things you hope for and wish for. You ask for. Certain things you're absolutely doing. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this right now. Other things... You express your will in different ways. God expresses His will in different ways. He has a second will. It's the moral will of God, which can be known. It should be known to all of us. Where is it? It's found in Scriptures. This is God's will for you, the will of God. That's what a testament is. The Old Testament and the New Testament, these are wills. Not only is it a promise left for you, but it's also God's will for you, for you. Now this will, the moral will, doesn't always take place. God wills certain things for you, but it doesn't always happen. For instance, don't gossip. (laughs) None of you have ever gossiped, so it's okay. Let's use something else. But none of us fulfill the moral law of God. That's why we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. This moral will is, as we study the Word of God, the Ten Commandments, we know don't steal, don't kill, don't defraud others, honor, and so forth. This will does not always take place. Now consider again the crucifixion. The same example we used for the first, for the sovereign will of God, the crucifixion with Christ's death. God's sovereign will unfolds exactly just as He planned right at the time He planned for it to happen. And He planned it before the foundations of the earth. Think about that. Do you Think about how God makes everything work just as He wills in His sovereign will right at the time He's planned for it to happen. Jesus died on the Passover in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? How timely. But here in the the moral will of God, we see that God's sovereign will unfolds with the crucifixion of Christ exactly as He planned it before the foundations of the earth, while at the same time, God's moral will is broken by those who killed Jesus. So His sovereign will is established while other people are breaking His moral will in order to establish His sovereign will. Won't get any more confusing than that. But God expresses His will in many different ways. Let me just tell you, those people, every single one of them, Judas included, will answer to God... For every act that was wicked and evil, they will, every single sin they committed, is either going to be paid for in Christ or in hell. But God is not going to let anybody off the hook. You go like, but God planned it. God did sovereignly plan the crucifixion, but they chose to crucify Christ. God didn't coerce them into crucifying Christ. He just steps away, and evil always does what God knows it'll do. So here we see God's moral will established by means of men breaking His, excuse me, God's sovereign will is established in the crucifixion, while men are establishing it by breaking God's moral will. Interesting. So you want to know, are you in the will of God, sovereign will? You couldn't do anything about it. Yes, you are. You are there. Say, I'm in the sovereign will of God. (laughs) You couldn't change it, okay? So you might as well give thanks in the moment that you're standing in. Are you in the moral will of God? That's another question. For we've all fallen short of the glory of God. No, we are not fulfilling God's moral will completely. That's why Jesus came. But we are being sanctified. The Bible talks about, you were saved, past tense. Then the Bible talks about, you are being saved, present tense. Then the Bible talks about, you are, we will one day be saved. The Bible talks about, you were saved, in the term justification, you were justified. In the present, he says, you are being sanctified. In the future, he says, you will be glorified. Justified, sanctified, glorified. You, are, you were saved in the past, you are being saved in the present, and you will be saved in the future, and nobody can be saved in only one or two of those categories. Anybody who was justified in Christ because they gave their lives to Jesus, they were justified 2,000 years ago, are currently being sanctified. If somebody's not currently being sanctified, it means they were not, never really justified. And if you were justified, you are being sanctified, therefore you will be glorified. Make sense? <laughs> we got two amens. Is this Greek? God is saving you. He sovereignly saved you in Christ. You were justified. Now... He's saving you. He saved you with His sovereign will. Now He's saving you through His moral will. You are being sanctified. (laughs) You are living out repentance as you look to His moral will. His moral will is taking place in the lives of those who He sovereignly saved. Does that make sense? Okay, good. There you go. (laughs) So you can go to the mirror... Open up the Bible and see just how much of God's will are you in or out of. Thirdly, the third category of the will of God is the wisdom of God. This is the will of God. The wisdom of God is the will of God. God doesn't want you, He didn't create life in such a way that you can be in His perfect will for your life, acting completely foolish. Right, <laughs> When He gave you His wisdom is so that you can walk in His ways and His will. That's how we walk in His will for our lives. This has to do with things like which career path to take or which house to purchase. You know, who do I marry? That one there is a little complicated because the Bible does give us in the moral will of God who not to marry. Right? It says, do not be unequally yoked together. So you, you, can, you can sin in God's moral will by marrying, by being unevenly yoked. But when it comes to the wisdom of God, you can't choose <laughs> out of two Christian women or two Christian men a different option, right? When you were younger and you were about to get married... You wanted to look at how respectful that person is towards the parents. You want to see how consistent they are in serving the Lord and what do they really fear the Lord as much as they say they do. All of those things matter, and that's wisdom. That's wisdom that you apply. Because remember, the one you marry is going to be part of your life forever. Raise your children and so forth. So the wisdom of God is the will of God. So if you need wisdom, the Bible says ask God and He will give you wisdom. He will give you wisdom. So the question that we want to end up here with today is in what category did Jesus refer to when He said in verse 39, and this is the will of God who sent me that I shall lose none of those He has given me. This is the will of God. Who sent me is that the wisdom of God no is that the moral will of God no this is Jesus he's speaking to is that the sovereign will of God yes the only one left and this is the sovereign will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me he's obviously claiming that the father's will is that he will lose none of those that he's saving So he's obviously referring to salvation and the sovereign will of God regarding salvation. Finally, verse 41. At this, the Jews, they began to grumble about him becoming, uh, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus said, Stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In other words, humans have an inability to come to Christ unless and until God the Father draws them. How? Through His irresistible grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, today... I pray, God, that as we look to the book of John to understand you better, we know, God, that Jesus is the greater Moses walking across the water, fulfilling the whole picture that we saw as Moses led the children of Israel through the the Red Sea. Jesus is the fulfillment of the manna that fell from heaven You affirm Him, Father, by causing Him to fulfill all those pictures, prophecies, types and shadows. But as Jesus also drew lines and said, only follow me for the right reasons, not for the wrong ones. Lord, we take inventory in our hearts. We see God. We gather around a truth, and that is the truth of Scripture's. That is the truth of Jesus Christ. That is the truth of the Lamb slain. That is the truth of your irresistible grace drawing us to you, Father, to submit ourselves, to deny ourselves, and follow Him. And Father, we thank you so much for teaching us today from John about your will, how you are sovereign, but that you also have a moral will, which is to be known and to be obeyed. And finally, Father, I pray for your wisdom, that we may be filled with your wisdom so that we may become fruitful in this life, filled with your wisdom that we will make decisions that will cause us, Father God, to be multiplied in your kingdom, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you get something out of John this morning? Amen.